Welcome to the Security Serengeti. We're your hosts, David Schweiniger, Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing, subscribe to our podcast, leave us a lovely five-star review, and follow us at Serengeti on Serengeti Sec on Twitter. We're here to talk more about some cybersecurity and technology news headlines and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical application that you can take into the office to help protect your organization. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. Add joke. <laughs> you know he reads anything you put on the <laughs> teleprompter. <laughs> uh, we're kicking off our new PC AAS service. Podcasting as a service. You pay five bucks per episode and you're free to keep any money that you make from it. Just like our first article, Ransomware as a Service Group rains money on their affiliates. I want someone uh, to rain it. money on me. Yeah. Well, with a title like that, you know that came to us from the register. So according to Group IB's report on the Quillen Ransomware Gang, they, pay their, they allow their affiliates to take home 80% of ransomware that's paid, and 85% of ransomware if it's over $3 million. So in that last case, $3 million, the, the Quillen group would still get $450,000 just with that 15%. So that's a pretty decent payday for a large upfront cost with you know little work afterwards. And I wonder if there's a differing legal liability there, where if you're not the ones doing the ransom, if there's less you could be arrested for or less you could be charged for. So if you produce a cyanide, but you don't drop it into the drink, <laughs> how guilty are you? I, I don't mean, know. We, we see lots of companies. There's research companies that, you know, make drug analogs that are like, no, but this isn't for, this is for research purposes. And we see companies that make lockpicks and stuff, which could be used in the consumption of a crime. But if it's not, then they're, they're legal and legal and allowed to do that. Yeah, I mean, Cobalt Strike is still in business. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. But this, I guess this is not out of the norm nowadays. So according to Heath Renfro, who's the co-founder of Phoenix 24, the Black Cat ransomware, uh, their affiliates have allegedly been earning 80 to 90% of the take versus 60 to 75% in the prior years. So I think, you know, these, it seems like the ransomware companies are now companies ransomware they are basically uh, gangs are in competition with each other and they're raising the percentage that their affiliates get to keep so the affiliates move from one ransomware group to the other wherever the highest payday is at saying well you know if black cat's going to give me 90 percent, i'm not going to go to quinlan who's only giving me 85 and according to malware bites these affiliates can have over 100 employees so they need that 85 percent because <laughs> they get developers, managers, negotiators. And, and we talked about that, if you remember back to our, our podcast Conti over episode. the Conti yeah. internal chat logs, talking about the different parts of the Conti group. And, and according to CrowdStrike, that, that 85% is not, is, is gotta be, is almost the norm here when they say the average ransom demand in 2021 was over $6 million. So on average, what, 80% of that is 800,000 times six, 4.8 million. And then the, the 1.2 million. Yeah. Considering, the, you know, if mm -hmm. these paydays are this high, I'm kind of surprised these groups don't pop up and down more often where, you know, they reach a retirement level amount of cash and just <laughs> We're hang, done. Up, hang it up, you know. Can afford my yacht. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Seems weird to me.
but the responsibility for the affiliates, so the affiliates are the ones that have to gain access to the organizations, run the attacks. They, 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 they pay tens of thousands of dollars for the, the, the ransomware kits. And then they have to pay a monthly fee, which is usually a flat fee for their subscription, which can be as low as 40 bucks. And then they also have one-time license fees where they can choose either profit sharing or not profit sharing. So they are doing a, doing a whole lot of work uh, to get that payday. And, mm-hmm. and the, the Quinlan group is running this whole thing like a SaaS, effectively. There's a portal you know, with an administrative panel for managing the attacks and a dashboard that highlights targets, payments, allows you to change your password. There's blogs and frequently asked questions. So this is, for lack of a better term, this is professional. You know, this yeah. is. And, and you know what? This this gets rid of my whole legal liability thing. Because if they're running a, they're running like a dashboard where you can log into hacked systems, then there's no, there's no like arm's length here. Right. <laughs> or frequently asked questions says, you know, if they don't pay you the money, mm. you go there with a wrench, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. But this gives us more insight into how the ransomware as a service stuff works. And, you know, hopefully the more that we understand how it works, the better we can counter it. I still think it's, it's down to the operating system vendors, though. I think they really need to, to fix this. I find it really fascinating, just like the economics of this. Because mm-hmm. one of the things, like most crime is, like we talked before about how the average take when you rob a bank is $10,000. Most crime is not worth it. Because to you know to can make your to make a make an upper middle class lifestyle robbing banks you'd have to rob like a bank a month, and that's dangerous and that's not high. But with with cybercrime you really can you really can make a middle class or upper class, or even a wealthy lifestyle off of cybercrime. Yeah, with with risk. Also. Yeah, yeah. As long as you're hitting people in other countries or countries where you don't have an extradition. Well, we also talked about the the take home right. Because if it's below a certain amount, the cops aren't even going to look at it. So as long as you keep your tape below a certain threshold and are able oh, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. to sh- and, and prevent your crimes from being tied together, then you're not going to even come up on the cops' radar. You know, if you if you were able to do this for you know the low cost, of, you know, low amount of ten thousand dollars a month, they won't even chase you. Not unless they realize that it's the same person doing it. For you know, two years or something. Yeah. They're like, oh, yeah, this maybe. guy's stolen two hundred forty thousand. Yeah, maybe. but if they don't chase you, how do they end up t- tying those things together? That's fair. That's fair. I don't know. I'm not sure how how this gets fixed. Other unless AI writes, you know, <laughs> software without vulnerabilities or something. I'm not. I'm not really sure. It it looks it looks bleak. Yeah. All right, for our second article, Discord admins hacked by malicious bookmarks. This one was from Krebs. Turns out it's actually pretty standard in a lot of ways, but it was a cool new vector I hadn't seen before. Some number of Discord servers that involved crypto were hacked using a novel method of executing JavaScript via bookmarks, targeting the admins of the servers. The attack started as an interview request to admins of the servers. If the targets accepted, they were sent a link to a Discord server that was named like it was the official server of the news organization. The link asked them to complete a verification step, which was dragging the button to the bookmarks bar in the browser and then click on the bookmark to confirm. They explicitly said, you'll want to bookmark this so you can verify your account in the future. 
There was, there was, there was some social engineering in there, but the button was not a discord link. It was a JavaScript that stole their discord tokens and kicked them off to the attacker. The attackers then used the token to steal their session after they had logged off for the day and posted a bunch of scams involving NFTs and or airdrops where you had to connect your wallet to the scam and you had to approve, you know, full, you know, giving and taking coins and they had other coins stolen. So it's interesting. This is just a standard BEC or, I mean, it was kind of, a, I guess it's not technically BEC, but it's the same kind of scam where they're just logging into a legitimate user and then using that user to steal money in some way. I just migrated to Discord, which is funny because it seems like every time there's a new method of communication, we have to learn the same lessons over and over again. It's different groups of people that are learning the lessons. Yeah, or they're just not able to like trans... But the, I'm sure these people have gotten BEC-style scams in their email before. Although, I don't know, maybe Gmail is pretty good at screening those out, so maybe they haven't seen them. But what was new to me is this takes advantage of a built-in function of the browser where you can store JavaScript code as a clickable link in the bookmarks folder to add features to the browser. This is called a bookmarklets, I think is what they called it, mm -hmm. starting in 2001. And they can do all sorts of things. Apparently what you can do is you can like highlight text and then click on the bookmarklet and it'll run a search query on that text or it'll extract the data from a table. I, I imagine it's anything JavaScript can do. Which is anything. Yeah, which is anything. So I'm, I'm just surprised that this is the first time I've seen this as a method of persistence or a method of infection. I, I mean, I imagine part of it's because as a bookmark, like people don't click on bookmarks necessarily all that often. And if you just added a new random bookmark, they'd be like, what is this? I'm not clicking on this. Well, I was going to say also the, the assumption for people is that because it's a bookmark, it feels safer. Yeah, because you're, yeah, you're used to not clicking on links and emails. In that context, you're like, I'm going to be suspicious. But a bookmark is not the same as that, right? Oh, uh, which, no, no. <laughs> which makes me wonder, actually, is if you could use something to rewrite the bookmarks for bank sites, maybe. Like it checks your bookmarks for common bank sites and then redirects it to a scam site or something or, or exchange, Bitcoin exchanges or anything like that, crypto exchanges. That might be interesting because then... If you rewrite the bookmark and then they remove the malware, the bookmark would still be there. Right. Yeah. And you know what they, if they did that for bookmarks in the toolbar, right? Because mm. like, those are your frequently used ones. So they're certainly yeah. to click on those in a you know, relatively short amount of time. Yeah. So apparently stealing the tokens bypassed two-factor auth, according to one of the people targeted. And this only worked as long as the user stayed logged in. Because as soon as they hit that logout button, the session was ended, which sounds like it would be really easy to kill this, but how many people log out manually as a common practice? Yeah. So they were just locking their, locking their screen or whatever at the end of the day and not logging out. Yeah. Or just, they never well, logged out this of their, was, this was their in Discord, Discord account. Yeah. They, yeah. I, I, I've never logged out of my Discord account. Well, then nobody cares. I'm not an admin in anything that matters, <laughs> but. Yeah, that's a good point. So I was saying, you know, it might be a good idea then to, for something like that to force a logout every four hours or eight hours or something. Uh, you probably want to, uh, at least that. for the admins. Yeah. You, yeah. You'd want to base that on permissions. Yeah. For like a regular user, maybe like once every week or something. And weirdly enough, when I was looking through this, I saw in the comments that Linus Tech Tips was hacked recently and I went, they had a video on it, which was really interesting. 
they received, since Linus Tech Tips is a big channel with like 15 million subscribers, they have a team that runs the channel. One of the members of their team got an email from a sponsor that downloaded malware and pulled all their credentials and session cookies and all their browser data. And then the attackers logged into the accounts by doing the same thing, which again, did not trigger two-factor auth. And they were able to really mess with that account and actually got it deleted off YouTube for a brief period of time. So why does this matter? This is another method of running code in a browser that's interesting and cool and different. And especially because, and, and this is something that people have been reporting all over the place, as more and more people are using MFA, attackers are, right now they're doing the MFA exhaustion attacks and MFA bombing or whatever you want to call it. But if they can just grab the session cookies, then they don't need to deal with the passwords or the MFA at all. In fact, if you've got the session cookies, I bet you don't even see a login in the logs. You just see, no, you won't. Yeah, you just see like calls for, you know, email sent by this new IP address. That'd be real tough to find in the logs potentially. Well, I mean, if you if you're able to track the token in the logs, then you could say, well, if the IP switches. Yeah, but sometimes the IP switches normally as people get on and off of VPN. So, or again, if they move between their house and work or to the coffee shop down the road and it doesn't force a login. Mm, you never do some testing to see how often that happens though with regular yeah. users. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, you still would be able to, what you would be able to do is if you could find a malicious email sent by an IP address or a malicious action, then you could pivot off that IP address for sure. I think, I think the problem is it's going to be a little more difficult. I'm not saying it's impossible. It's just going to be a little more difficult. I'm just thinking myself, like that's usually when someone reports that their email has been compromised. The first dashboard I go to is logins and login IP addresses and look for like, oh, here's a login from, you know, Asia and you're in Chicago and that's not going to show up in that. You just, I think people are going to have to adjust their investigation mm -hmm. methods. Well, if you run AV or EDR on the endpoint, is, would that would that be able to detect job, the JavaScript accessing the session, session cookies? cookies? I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen a detection that looks like that. Which doesn't mean that just means that the specific EDRs I've worked on haven't had it. So. The thing is, yeah, I think for the EDR to do that though, it would have to know know about all the session cookies. Uh, but they're probably so. stored in a single place, and the only thing that should be touching those session cookies should be the browser itself. So if like a, a, a like WScript or some other program was touching the location where the session cookies were, that's probably enough to alert on. Hmm. Maybe, maybe. Now, <laughs> maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's lots of things. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I'm sure everybody who's ever worked with an EDR sees the absolute flood of alerts when something touches the system files and folders of the EDR itself. Oh yeah, stop touching me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. MacBee's notorious for that. Yep. Uh, CrowdStrike too. CrowdStrike's super noisy there. So, so what should you do about it? I don't think that this necessarily means changing how you're blocking or detecting JavaScript because it still has to run JavaScript. So if you've got detections around anomalous JavaScript usage, you should still detect this. But I would add to your SOP after a malware incident, ask folks to log out of everything. So that it'll reset those session tokens or any kind mm -hmm. of, you know, credential reuse or anything where somebody's, somebody had their, you know, SAS, uh, access to a SAS that was, you can't figure out what's going on. 
log out, log back in, reset your session cookies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good idea. All righty. And our next article is China labels U.S. empire of hacking based on old WikiLeaks dumps. Oh, no. This comes to us from the register. So the National Computer Virus Emergency Response Center of China and local InfoSec Outfit 360 Total Security. That <laughs> sounds completely legit. I think uh, I've seen them before. Have conducted an investigation I, called I The think, Matrix. I think they're detected as malware by CrowdStrike. <laughs> nice. But they conducted an investigation and called it The Matrix that found the CIA conducts offensive cyber ops and labeled the United States an empire of hacking. Shocking. I know. I was surprised myself to hear about it. <laughs> but apparently, this is all from the Vault 7 stuff, which is, man, I, I forgot to look up when Vault 7 happened. This has been, oh, I bet it's been five years since Vault 7 was released. <laughs> but in that release, it showed that the CIA was ex exploiting computers, smart TVs, WhatsApp, and Cisco hardware, as well as many, many more things. Uh, so apparently this is just a screed against the United States. Th th this included a screed against the United States regime, regime change efforts. And, and they, they said the U.S. must take seriously and respond to concerns from the international community and stop using cyber weapons to carry out espionage and cyber attacks around the world. And this was from the foreign ministry spokesperson, Mao Ning. And they ended the quote by saying, pot, meat, kettle. Do they really? No. Oh, thank God. I was like, I was like, I thought that I was, I was like, there's no way. There's no way. <laughs> no, because no, no government admits their own, their own nefarious actions, right? <laughs> and this comes, of course, you may not remember, but in 2015, the United States actually signed into a signed a document with China, which was basically a, a no hack pact, where the United States and China both agreed that they were going to. I'm not sure if it was exactly no hack, but reduce the amount of hacking that that each each country was doing to the other. But all this stuff here came out of a a, a Chinese published document called Empire of Hacking: The United States Central Intelligence Agency, Part One. Unfortunately, I clicked on the link and, and the link was broken. So unfortunately, I didn't get to see the document. It may have completely been in Mandarin or, or whatever. So maybe I wouldn't have even been able to read it. But I was curious to see exactly what was in there. But unfortunately, the link was broken. Maybe they'll get it fixed between now and then. But the link to the, <laughs> the, the register article or the link to the document is in the register article. So maybe by the time you hear this, it'll be fixed and you can go and check out that document yourself. But we just wanted to mention this because every government hacks every other government. You know, neither, neither side has any compunction whatsoever about doing whatever they think they need to do or get away with. I'm shocked. Shocked to tell you. Yeah. So just keep this in mind when you hear bad things about the United States or its enemies doing things because everybody is doing it for their own benefit. And I was just thinking about, they mentioned that the, the vulnerabilities in the Cisco products that were, that were released as part of the Vault 7, Cisco fixed it based on those Vault 7 links. And it seems to me like it would be a pretty defensible exercise for a whistleblower to let people know when the government is hiding vulnerabilities from the rest of the world in products simply so they can take advantage of it. 
Because if the United States thought that they were the only ones leveraging these Cisco vulnerabilities, I think they were probably sadly mistaken, which means that we were just as vulnerable as, as, as they are when vulnerabilities are not disclosed. Yep. That sounds about right. All right. Last one here. IT employee impersonates ransomware gang to extort employer. You might think that this is the same article we talked about two weeks ago, but it is not. <laughs> no, it's a Brit getting in on it. <laughs> I actually, saw the other one. He was like, actually, how about? Well, actually, this took place in 2018. So the other guy may have modeled his oh. off of this fella. Is this guy just finally got charged? Is that why uh, it's showing up? Yeah. Yeah. He finally admitted guilt. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. All right. So this is from Bleeping Computer. <clears throat> a Southeast Regional Organized Crime Unit. This doesn't sound like it'd be an organized crime, but the press release says Ashley Lyles, who worked as an IT security analyst for an Oxford-based company, was convicted of unauthorized computer access with criminal intent and blackmailing his employer. Yeah. So, I mean, if you saw this guy's filofax, you would see that he was very organized, uh, which is why he was charged by the organized crime unit. Oh, I see. So the company was ransomware and threat actors contacted the executives demanding a ransom payment. Lyles was part of the internal investigation. This sounds familiar. <laughs> and incident response effort. So uh, it's a little different though. The previous one, they had actually performed the malicious actions and then were part of the investigation. So in this case though, he wasn't responsible for the ransomware. He just tried to trick his employer into paying him the ransom instead of the original attacker. He did commence a separate and secondary attack against the company where he, quote, access to board members' private emails over 300 times, as well as altering the original blackmail email and changing the payment address provided by the original attacker. Yeah, I mean, that's really all he had to do was that one thing. You know, yeah. just edit the email to put his crypto wallet in there instead. Yep. And then there would have been a whole bunch of pointing of fingers because the attackers are like, you didn't pay us. And they're like, no, we paid you. Look. And yeah. Uh, although getting the money out has always been a problem. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, you worry about that problem later. <laughs> you get the money now. Yeah. But I'm curious how he edited the email. Because uh, I don't think you can just log into a mail server and edit an email that's in the database uh, through the you know through the through the tools of the email server. I would think you would have to actually go into the database itself using SQL or whatever, and then use VI or something low level like that to edit the entry and put it back in the database, right? I have no idea how you would do this, but you're, yeah, you're right. It's all stored in a database. You'd have to replace that original one in the database, I imagine. Or you can pull emails via PowerShell. Can you put emails back? Hmm. I wouldn't think so. Cause when you're pulling via PowerShell, you're not actually pulling. You're just, you're, yeah, you're just copying. You're right. just taking a copy of it, hmm. but you can delete, but then how would you put it back in their inbox? Yeah. I don't know. No, I, they said, I'm not sure exactly how he did it. Maybe that's that's why he got caught. It's because he did it in such a ham-fisted way <laughs> that it was obvious what he had done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah apparently the, the accesses, I mean, they did detect that he accessed the board members' private emails a bunch of times, so. Right. Well, he also did something yeah. stupid, which is create an identical email address or a, an email address that was almost identical to the attacker's email address and start emailing the employer saying you need to pay. 
well, he probably was privy to the discussions where they were like, we're not going to pay. And he was like, damn it, there's my payday slipping out the. Yeah. Because yeah. the company owner apparently was not interested in paying the attackers. Yeah. But the thing is, it, it, if he didn't get paid, he didn't get paid. You know, no skin off his nose, right? Just change the address. Don't touch anything else. Don't touch anything else. And then if you get paid, you get paid. You know, congratulations. If you don't get paid, then everybody forgets about it. You move on. But this guy was not, that's not what he was thinking. No, you're right. Because if, if he had just changed the address, why would they have ever looked at the email records at all? Like they would have just been like, we're not paying. The address doesn't matter. Like they wouldn't have looked into the address at all. Right. Yeah. I mean, the cops would have looked at the address and seen, well, who else is, you know, has yeah. this address been to get paid and, from and nobody else for and everything have, else? Unless he, unless he put an address that he already right. had been using for and, other and stuff. But that's not terribly unusual either for, yeah. you know, ransomware gangs to have a pristine address to be leveraged either. Yeah. So, so it's not detectable. Yeah. Tracked. I think he, yeah. he could have got away with the attempt anyway if he wasn't so over the top. He didn't push his luck. But he felt guilty. You know, just recently, after five years, and they, he hasn't been sentenced yet, but he could get between two and 14 years in jail for the computer crime, along with the blackmail. Tsk, tsk. Uh, so this is important because just like last week, it shows that you cannot trust security people. No, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to come into work on Monday and get fired because of this. <laughs> but I mean, security people are people just like anybody else. There's good ones and bad ones. Who watches the watchers? Right. Exactly. That's the whole thing behind the watchman. Yeah. But one of the things I was thinking about is if he had edited that email address and you had already archived the original in your case management system, you would at least have been able to, to compare the two emails against each other to see that it had been changed. Yeah. I don't know. That's curious because you. I feel like, again, we're talking about the database. You'd almost need database logging to see that because I don't think that's something you can do. I mean, I'm assuming they had Office 365 because darn near everybody does now. I don't know if that's something that's logged by default. Yeah, I don't know. And I'm not sure why he would have the access as a security administrator or a security analyst to the email system to make those kind of changes. Oh, maybe that's an argument for least privilege. An IT security analyst needs more privilege than an average user, but yeah, it does not need email administration privilege or AD admin privileges or... Any number of other things. Yeah. As well as, you know, all those, all the actions that the, that the email admins take, are those actually being logged into the SIM? Because even if you're, you consider that, take the nefarious part of this out of the, uh, out of the equation here, that you know, you've got email admins doing things in the system. They could have done something which compromised the integrity of the, of the information as part of the investigation also, just by making a mistake or something like that. So maybe it'd be beneficial to ensure, or it would be beneficial to ensure that what your email administrators are doing is logged to the SIM also. So you, you can track that down and understand what happened. And I was also thinking, you know, is there any, and this is made sound ludicrous, but is there any value in printing off certain artifacts and maintain, maintaining hard copies of those for some incidents? Yeah, uh, I would you say should just print off all the, all the email, all the email, all the email. Just, every email that comes in goes straight to the printer. I mean, you can do that back in the day when you had a dot matrix printer where all the paper was connected to itself. You know, <laughs> just, it was just going off all list. day long. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, stick so it then, over, stick it over next to the analyst. They love that. It'll help them stay, you know, help them stay focused. Awake. 
All right. Well, thanks for listening to the Scary Serengeti Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Serengeti Sec and subscribe and listen on your favorite podcast app.